This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Ambassador Ida Aroni, who today serves as the Global Distinguished Professor at NYU's Program of International Relations in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Previously, Ambassador Aroni is a 25-year veteran of Israel's Foreign Service, a public diplomacy specialist, and the founder of Brand Israel Program and a well-known nation branding practitioner. Ambassador Roney served as Israel's longest serving consul general in New York and the tri-state area, and that was for six years, where he oversaw the operations of Israel's largest diplomatic mission worldwide. Ido, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, a true delight. Now, you have chosen a uh, terrific passage, not from the Torah, but one that really articulates the quintessential importance of the seminal moment of the Torah. And tell us about your passage and uh, why it's so significant to you. First of all, let me tell you what the passage is in Hebrew. In English, it's a passage that we say during the Passover in every generation. One must look upon himself, herself, as if he or she personally had gone out of Egypt. And the reason why I am so connected to this is because of my own personal history and because of the historical context that this passage provides. Very interesting. How does this relate to your personal history? Okay, that's an interesting story. So, you know, first of all, a lot of people, especially those who oppose the existence of the state of Israel, are buying into this baloney colonialist uh, narrative that um, Israel is a byproduct of the European guilt after the Holocaust, and it came at the expense of the indigenous Palestinians. And the story of people like my family that came here in 1874 and settled in Jerusalem, that's my father's side, the Aronofs, they came from what is today Uzbekistan. And my mother's family came from Yemen. Uh, My grandmother came as a baby. They stopped through Egypt and on the way from Yemen. And they landed in Tel Aviv in 1912. Uh, So my father's family came in 1874. My mother's family came in 1912. And so I feel that we are the real Palestinians. We have deep roots in this region. And when I did my DNA testing, we have some, you know, Sephardic roots. But by and large, I'm 75% from this region. So my family never left this region for thousands of years. And so that's the first connection I have with that passage. My grandmother actually came out of Egypt. Practically, she came from Yemen as a baby. She lived in Egypt for five years, and then she came to Tel Aviv, 1912. Do you know why would they have stayed in Egypt for five years en route to the Promised Land? The uh, situation in Tel Aviv was, well, Tel Aviv was founded in 1909. But before there was Tel Aviv, there was Jaffa. And there were two neighborhoods that were built outside of Jaffa, two Jewish neighborhoods. One before Tel Aviv, one is called Neve Shalom, and the other is Neve Tzedek. Neve Tzedek is near the Yemenite quarter. And the situation around the turn of the century was pretty bad. Uh, there was no food. People were hungry, practically starvation. So the, the Yemenites who came 
to the Holy Land in late 19th century and settled in Jerusalem and outside of Jaffa, many of them went to Egypt because in Egypt you could find work and food. And the Yemenites spent years in Egypt and many of them came back to uh, what was then Palestine. So they, they went from Yemen to pre-state Israel to Egypt and back? Yes, they went from Yemen to Jaffa or Jerusalem. This, this uh, wave of immigrants called Aleba Tamar, the Jews of Yemen that came in the late 19th century. And uh, the, the Jews that were in the Jewish centers at the time, Rishon Lezion, Petah Tikva, they, they were Ashkenazi Jews. They were farmers. They were landlords. They were Orthodox, like the Yemenite Jews, but they had no idea what to do with them because they looked like the Arabs. They spoke a different language, but they were not Arabs. They were Jews. So what they did with them, they created a compound for the Yemenites outside of the Jewish community. Where, in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv? In every city. In Jerusalem, they were put in En Kerem, or in Emek Hamatzleva. In Tel Aviv, it was the Kerem Atemanim, the Yemenite quarter. In Petah Tikva, it was Rosh Sha'ain. In Rehovot, it was Sha'ain. Did they marry each other? They married each other, yeah. So the, the, the Ashkenazi Jews, late 19th century, early 20th century, did not know what to do with them, with the Yemenites. They looked like the Arabs, but they were Jewish. I just want to clarify, did the Ashkenazi Jews marry the Yemenite Jews in those days? No, not at all. And so I remember when my father married my mother, his Sephardic family that was well established in Jerusalem, they looked down at my mother's family and uh, because she was a Yemenite from Tel Aviv. But in any event, so there was a practical Egypt chapter in my family. So that's the, the personal connection to this passage. Wow. So let's move from the personal connection you have to the passage where your family actually did live in Egypt within almost the last hundred years to why is this passage read and known by Jews all over the world today and forever as one of the seminal explanations of what I believe is our greatest holiday, bar none, the holiday of Pesach. Yeah. So, you know, there are many, many interpretations and commentaries attached to this passage, but my commentary is very simple. Zionism, and I'm a Zionist, and my entire public career was devoted to the celebration of Zionism. What is Zionism? It's the national movement of our people. It's the decision of our people to basically take their own destiny and to be in control of it. That's what it means. And to fulfill the biblical mandate that we should become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in the promised land, which is... It's basically Jewish self-determination. That's what it means. It has many forms, has many interpretations, but essentially Zionism equals Jewish self-determination. Now, a lot of people don't know that, especially many friends that I have in the United States today that are so concerned with the so-called BDS movement and, and things of that nature. Um, they don't know that Zionism was never popular among Jews. In fact, uh, between mid-19th century until 1924, until the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act, 2.2 million Jews left Eastern Europe and came to North America, United States, and Canada. During that time, only a handful of Jews came to Palestine. In fact, in the early 1930s, late 1920s, more Jews left Palestine than came to Palestine. So Zionism was never a big hit among Jews. The vast majority of Jews did not support Zionism. The biggest critics of Zionism were Jews. Um, you had, on the one hand, the 
ultra-Orthodox on the right. And on the left, you had the Bundists who were socialists, but they were anti-Zionists. Many of them settled in the greater New York area, in Chicago, in Philadelphia. And you, and you find their children and their grandchildren today involved in active criticism of Israel today, which I understand where, where it's coming from. I understand the background. But the biggest change happened in 1945. In 1945, two things happened. The first is, of course, the war ended, and we started grasping the scope and the magnitude of the Holocaust, because this was before internet, this was before electronic media. It took time for information to travel from Europe to Palestine. So that's the first thing that happened. Around the same time, a second thing happened regionally, locally. The Arab League, which was the umbrella organization of all the 22 Arab nations, decided to suffocate the tiny Jewish community in then Palestine by boycotting its tiny and minuscule economy. That's called the Arab economic boycott. So the combination of those two, the end of the Holocaust, and the realization that even a tiny economy, 500,000 people with zero export, was not something that the Arabs could tolerate after the Holocaust. Then it dawned on people that it doesn't matter who you are. You can be half Jewish. You can be one quarter Jewish. You cannot only be married to a Jew. According to the Nazis, according to the Nuremberg laws, they go back two generations to determine who is a Jew. And their definition was very, very inclusive. And you could be a Zionist, you could be an anti-Zionist, you could be a communist, you could be a socialist. It doesn't matter. You know, in today's terms, you could say you could even be a pro-BDS Jew. It didn't matter. And so therefore, in every generation, each and every one of us, this is the one thing that we have, you know, to connect us. It's the shared destiny, because in times of crisis, in times of strife, the oppressor, from the Inquisition all the way to the Nazis, doesn't make any distinction. And that's the lesson to be learned from that passage, in my view. And also, the, the passage does tie us together horizontally within a generation, but it also ties us together vertically. Because in every generation, we should think the same thing with regards to being those who were liberated from Egypt. So this our great-great-grandparents, those who your DNA test proved that they were probably within a few miles of where you are right now, and you both said the same passage at the same time of year with the same meaning. Tell me if this is right in the Hebrew, but there's no Hebrew word for history. I mean, the word is historia, but... Um, but that's obviously a made-up Ben Yehuda word, right? There's a word in Hebrew, moreshet, which translates into either legacy or heritage. And that's a Hebrew word. That's an old Hebrew word. We, have, we certainly have legacy and heritage, but so if, you, if a culture doesn't have a word for something, it doesn't have a concept for it. There's no word for it. There's no need for a word for it. And what's so interesting is that Jews substituted history for memory. So we don't have history. We have memory because history is the story of what happened to other people. There's no other people when you're talking about the Jews. It's just memory. So we have a very rich memory, which is what Pesach's all about, but there's no sense of, of history. It's the mechanism, yeah. It's the mechanism of storytelling, which many luminaries, including uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the um, famous professor from the Hebrew University, accredit the, you know, they attribute the uh, survivability, the phenomenal survivability and adaptability of the Jewish people throughout the ages to the ability of the Jewish people to tell stories, and by doing so, 
maintain the continuity from one from mirkol dor vador, right? And, and from one generation to another, we tell the story, and that's the whole purpose of, of Passover, but it, it goes beyond that. We tell the story of creativity. We tell the story of problem solving. We tell the story of humor. You know, Jewish humor is very unique. It's very, very interesting. There's no coincidence that in the United States, you have so many comedians who are of Ashkenazi Jewish background from certain countries that were oppressed. And humor was one of the ways to deal with the oppression. For example, the former Soviet Union. Hungary and Poland and many of the big Jewish comedians, they came from Hungary, their families. I think it's fascinating. Interesting. It was from Hungary specifically? Yeah. Very interesting. If you look at the family background of all they came from, you'll see that uh, the number, and even in Israel, the biggest writers, you know, the people that wrote comedy and, and, and um, one of them was Ephraim Kishon, who was an extremely talented one of the gifted people to ever, you know, write and, and direct. He directed movies. Very interesting. You know, Eli Wiesel said, uh, God created man because God loves stories. It's, it's very much in, in, in the Jewish imagination. In particular, our great story is the Passover story, the Pesach story. I think Passover is a terrible translation, by the way. But it's, it's the Pesach story. But the story is specifically of what you said. It's the story of us all going out from Egypt. And I think so crucial to understanding the Pesach story is a realization that it wasn't they who came out of Egypt. It's all of us who came out of Egypt. And of course, there are 70 different ways to look at any passage. And one of the Hasidic ways to look at this passage is that we're all trying to escape our own personal Egypts at all times. So what does uh, Egypt actually mean? It's, it, does it mean restraint? It means that the power to define who you are is given to you, but you cannot ignore the other's definition of yourself. Again, even if you say, I don't feel part of the Jewish collective, I don't feel part of the Zionist movement, I, I, I couldn't care less about them, I am, uh, I'm something else, I have a different worldview, uh, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it's the other's perception of the Jewish people as a collective that matters. And time and again, throughout history, we were proved wrong, all those people were proved wrong. You know, there is a, a wonderful play written by um, the younger brother of the prime minister. His name is Ido Netanyahu. He wrote a play called uh, Happy End. And it takes place in Germany, November of 1932, if I'm not mistaken. It's a Jewish um, scientist who is promised a uh, tenured position in an American university, but he does a very important research project he's working on in Berlin, and he has to make a decision whether to leave Germany and go to uh, Princeton or, or stay. And his son is beginning to experience abuse and harassment in school. He has to make, I don't want to spoil the end of the play, but let me just say it's called The Happy End for a reason. And I, would, uh, I think it exists on YouTube, but it's a historical depiction of what went on. And again, these people had nothing to do with Zionism. You know, my son um, is studying film and television, and we were just going over together, we're reading uh, Roman Polanski's uh, autobiography, and he writes about his mother. You know, Roman Polanski, the filmmaker, his father was Jewish, his mother uh, was not Jewish, and she, was, she did not even convert. And there was nothing Jewish about his upbringing. And uh, she was the only one of his family who died in the camps. She died in Auschwitz. So that just shows you that it's them who define who we are. 
And it's an interesting lesson to be learned. Absolutely. Now, is the Hebrew for Egypt, it's Mitzrayim, right? Yes. Right. And that means restraint. So is there a personal lesson in this as well? So we talk about the national lesson of how it's so important that we remember that we were slaves in Egypt and that we have emerged. Is there a personal or psychological lesson or application to your passage as well? The personal exodus, which, you know, we all experience in different ways, personal and individual ways. And so, um, yeah, I think that's the most important lesson of Pesach, that people can um, look at the story of what happened to us in a collective and then look at themselves and say, where is my exodus? And um, my exodus can be my ability to overcome socioeconomic barriers or my ability to come physical barriers or my ability to overcome barriers, period. Each person has his or her own exodus, own liberating process, and that helps us from a psychological point of view to overcome, to know it's like in sports, it's like in every other challenge that you're facing. Very interesting. So, so the same passage then has both national and psychological implications, which are by no means contradictory. In fact, they're complementary and they, they build on each other and they focus us on the same challenge. Exactly. And, um, you know, what we do during the uh, Seder on Pesach is tell that story. And the more we count the story, the more praiseworthy it becomes. It's a wonderful ritual. And again, it's a living testimony to the effectiveness of storytelling. This is how our people survive throughout history. Right. And, you know, one of the great questions of the Bible is one would think if one were writing the Bible or the Torah anew, you would start with the laws and then get to the stories. But we do the opposite. Genesis starts with the stories and then Exodus continues with the stories. And we don't get to the laws really until Leviticus. So why do you think it is that we start with the stories before we get to the laws? Well, I think that the stories provide us with the with the general framework, with the context of who we are, how we came into being, how this how the universe was created. It's like a relationship. You don't start the relationships with the restrictions. You start the relationships with what we call confidence-building measures, CBMs. Uh, you want to befriend. You want to create an emotional connection. You want to establish a relationship. That's the meaning of the word. Then comes the, you bring in the restrictions. That's right. We start with the story of Genesis, then we come to Exodus. And, and as you said, our, our obligation is to uh, remember that it was us who left Egypt. And it's an ongoing challenge of leaving Egypt. And, you know, interestingly, we also say in the Haggadah that 70 people went down to Egypt. This is with, uh, with Jacob. But actually, when you count the number of people who went with Jacob to Egypt, it's only 69. And so the question is, well, why did they get it wrong? If there's only 69 people, but it says 70, is there a math problem? And of course, it's not a math problem. I believe it's at number 70 because of the reasons that you articulate is each of us. Right. And by the way, the state of Israel, you know, a lot of people disagree with Israel's proclamation of independence, but it says in there that Israel is the state of the Jews, which means that one of our jobs is to provide safe haven for all Jews, whether they support Israel or not. Again, it's part of the same redemption. It's 
part of the same journey. So you can have the Jews of Ethiopia definitely wanted to come to Israel. And by the way, Israel is the only country in the world that proactively went into Africa to bring people, uh, not to enslave them. And then you, you, you have people that the state of Israel intervened on their behalf, even if they had no emotional tie to Israel or the Zionist movement. For example, the, the, former, the Jews from the former Soviet Union in the 1970s let my people go. Not all of them came to Israel. Many of them came to Israel for a very short time and then moved to Germany or moved to Canada or moved to the United States. Or even, you know, we don't even know uh, when the Israeli soldiers flew into Entebbe in 1976 to release the Jewish passengers. Again, talking about the other's definition of who we are. It was an Air France airplane. It was the terrorists who divided them into two groups, Jews and non-Jews. The captain who just died a couple of years ago refused to leave. You know, he was given the opportunity because he was not Jewish not to stay with them. He said, these are my passengers. I'm staying with them. And so we don't even know if all of among those Jews, all of them had a connection to Israel. All of them, you know, had an emotional tie, supported Israel. We have no idea, but it didn't matter. The state of Israel, only because they were Jews. And it's, uh, and I have to say, the law of return favorably discriminates Jews. That's what makes Israel unique. There's a contract, a legal contract between the state of Israel and every person who's Jewish or of Jewish background in the world. Doesn't matter where they're coming from politically. That's right. It's a covenant. Now, when you were um, the consul general, you know, the longest serving diplomat in the Israeli Foreign Service, how often did you encounter people who realized at some point in their life, probably later in their life, that they were partially Jewish, that their ancestors may have had, their ancestors they may have known, may have been a grandparent, had some kind of Jewish practice that they discovered the meaning of relatively recently, and thus wanted to learn more about Israel, wanted to learn more about Judaism, and wanted to get to know you? Yeah, many, many. And the most famous case, of course, was NBA star Amaris Stoudemire, who approached me after he discovered he had Jewish roots and wanted to learn more about the connection. And today he is uh, a practicing Jew and he lives a full Jewish life, very connected to Israel, very connected to the Jewish community. So that's a, a major success story. But now he's a Kiddush Hashem, and I believe he lives in Jerusalem, right? Well, right now he's in Florida, but uh, but he lived in Jerusalem for for several years and then lived in Tel Aviv. But he has businesses in Israel. He's is involved in you know in kosher wine now. He's producing kosher wine, and he's just um, a terrific human being. And there's a wonderful documentary that I urge our listeners to watch called Children of the Inquisition, produced by my good friend Joseph Levitt. Joseph Levitt used to work for 60 Minutes. And what he did, he produced a documentary featuring uh, four or five Latinos that discovered that they're part Jewish. And he explored with them what it actually did to them on a personal level. And it's fascinating. And he created a website called Children of the Inquisition. It became almost a movement because... There are about 20, 30% of Latinos that uh, do their DNA testing that discover that they're part Jewish. And they can be 5% Jewish, and can be 50% Jewish, they can be 70% Jewish. The point is that they discover a connection to that collective called the Jewish people, and it changes them because all of a sudden they feel that they're part of a bigger narrative, of a bigger story, the narrative of our people. And they're part of that narrative. Fascinating. It's a fascinating phenomenon. And, and the more 
popular DNA testing has become, the more people you, and if you watch the show on PBS, Finding Your Roots, and many of the people on the show discover their Jewish roots. And some of the Jews discover, they, they, they know they're Jewish, but they had no idea as to the hardships of their ancestors. For example, if you, if you watch that show, uh, one of the most moving episodes is with Dustin Hoffman. So Dustin Hoffman, of course, he knew he was Jewish, but he never really knew what terrible hardships his family had to go through in order to come to America. That's not what happened to him. But uh, Linda Chavez, her DNA test uh, showed her that she was part Jewish um, and many others. He likes the, the Henry Gates Jr. He likes to bring celebrities to the show. So it's very interesting. Or Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean, she knew her father was Jewish, but she started investigating and learning about her Jewish heritage. She, she connected with that. And I see the same thing on my wife's side of the family where several of her, my wife is one of six and several of her siblings married non-Jews. And so we have uh, nephews and nieces who are not halakhically Jewish, but now they're connecting. They're interested. They want to know more about their family history. It's fascinating, let me tell you. So it sounds like there are probably as many people in the world who are in some ways Jewish in ways they didn't know perhaps now and certainly until recently as there are Jews like you and me who know full well just how Jewish we are. Absolutely, and, and it presents a dilemma to us as a community. And the dilemma is in the word that we use so frequently called assimilation. The word assimilation assumes a negative connotation. I'm not saying that Jews should be encouraging other Jews to marry outside of the faith, but I think it's a mistake from a, an historical perspective to reject people who want to be part of the collective. We should look at the people that, through marriage, non-Jews, uh, became part of the Jewish experience and developed a positive predisposition to Jewish life. I'm sure you know that as a husband of a rabbi, that there are many people who marry Jews and through those marriages, through those relationships, develop a deeper understanding of what it means to be Jewish. They don't have to convert, but they have a positive experience with Jewish tradition and Jewish life. Uh, we see that all the time. Yes, I think you know one of the imperatives of, of institutional Judaism today is to be biblical about it and to be like Naomi and Ruth, where it wasn't so hard to convert in the Bible. All Naomi had to say is, may your people be my people and your God be my God, and she was in. You're so correct. And, and so I assume, this is my feeling, that we're looking at maybe 20, 30 million Jews and 30 million people in the United States that through marriage developed a positive predisposition to Jewish life and to the Jewish experience. And what do we do with them? Do we reject them because they're not religiously Jewish? They're not technically Jewish? Or do we embrace them? And I think that history will judge us if we will not embrace them. That's my opinion. And I say this after spending 30 years in and out of the United States. I'm married to an American Jew. My children are all American. I'm the only one in my family that doesn't have an American passport. Right. Very interesting. So. Uh, historically, now you mentioned uh, children of the Inquisition. What happened? Is this all deriving from the fact that during the Inquisition, so many Jews had to hide their Judaism or convert to Christianity? And 
their Judaism became within a couple of generations lost to history and is being rediscovered now? Yes, and their ancestors were forced to convert to Christianity. So you have stories like the story of Amara Stodemeyer, where his grandmother kept some Jewish traditions. For example, she used to light candles on Friday night, and she used to bake challah 500 years after the Inquisition. I mean, this is insane, right? It's incredible. So 500 years after the Inquisition, 500 years, his grandmother, because she descended 500 years previously from the Inquisition, a tradition had sustained itself for 500 years to bake challah on Friday night. So over the 500 years, the reason why you bake challah on Friday night may have been lost, but the tradition got sustained as though we're waiting there for Amari to rediscover it in the 21st century. Unbelievable. Exactly. And so you have that experience. And then you have those people who were just did their DNA test because it's a very millennial thing to do. And all of a sudden they discovered, I have to tell you a story. I, w- I went to um, a meeting in, in LA and I met with this um, producer who's originally his family came from Sweden. And it was my first meeting with him. And we were introduced through someone that I know who's Jewish. And uh, this producer couldn't be nicer on a first meeting. And it turned out he did his DNA test and discovered that he was part Jewish. And that very fact created an immediate connection, an immediate bond. And I would say even a certain degree of friendship evolved from that. Just the notion that part of me is part of your story. It's about being part of the same narrative. Beautiful. Well, Ido, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about such an important Jewish teaching stemming from our great Pesach narrative. The concluding question always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Torah, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He tells the story of, he said, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. (laughs) So, you know, in all of your years as being a diplomat, representing Israel throughout the world, and being an ambassador not only of Israel, but of the Jewish state to Jewish communities and to Gentile communities everywhere, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? The first is that it's not true what people tell you, especially mothers tell their children. You have to have sharp elbows. You have to be more aggressive. You have to, it's not true. You know, at the end of the day, the good guys always win. And I've learned that in diplomacy. I am now in business. I see that in business. It really pays to be good, to promote goodness, to be kind, to be courteous, to be polite, to be gentle. It really pays. It really comes back to you in a very, very big way. And there is this uh, horrible notion, especially in the world of business, and you see that when you see some, the behavior of CEOs, and you see this in the movies, but I saw that in real life, people that run companies, and they have a tendency to abuse the people that work with them, and they're not nice, and they're harsh and aggressive. And you see it everywhere. You see it in Hollywood, you see it in Wall Street, you see it in the world of television and newspapers. And the first thing that I learned is that it just doesn't work. If you're a prick, it's going to bite you in the end. And we see it. We see it now with the Me Too movement, and uh, we see it in, in a big way. And I feel that not a lot of people really understand that. That's the one thing. And in our popular culture, 
you look at the movies from Wall Street to the Big Short to the, you know, all the movies that depict those, this culture. So that's the first thing that I learned. The second is that the only thing that we can really aspire for is to make a difference. And the difference can be tiny, but that's the only thing that we can aspire for. I wouldn't aspire for more. Um, you know, at the end of the day, touch the lives of the people around you. That's really the, the, the essence. Uh, that's the whole Torah in, in one sentence. How do you translate that? Don't do to others what you don't want others to do to you. And it's very, very simple to maintain. And I think that, again, that's been my experience. And now that I'm in business, I see how important it is. You know, when you're in a position of, of serving a nation as a consul general, you were in a position to do a lot of favors to people. People call you up when they need you. And uh, there are two ways to handle this. One way is to say, you know, I'm not available. And the other is to say yes to everybody. My rule was to say yes to every request. I mean, you remember that. I said yes to everybody. How could you do that? You must have gotten some crazy requests. Well, you know, most of the requests were to uh, speak publicly, to come and represent. And then people needed help with uh, some consular affairs or they needed information. Or then, and, and thank God I had a large staff and people that I worked with developed a very, very healthy and strong service awareness. And so it really worked well. And now, you know, I've been retired from government for four years. I'm now working in the world of investment. I'm working in the world of consultancy. I'm teaching. And now I can tell you that I'm, I'm looking back and I said to myself, thank God I did what I did the way I did it because I felt that I really touched people's lives. I, I tried to do what I was taught was the essence of diplomacy. And really, diplomacy is the absolute opposite of war. Diplomacy is all about relationships. It's all about the promotion of goodness. Right. Well, you were a great diplomat, and I so appreciated our friendship when you were uh, representing Israel in New York and our friendship as it continues uh, subsequently and the incredible work that you did as consul general. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, come to think of it, like everyone knew that uh, when they wanted Israel's voice heard somewhere, you would be there and, and speaking in Israel's voice as beautifully and intelligently as one could. So thank you for all that work. And, and by the way, it, it's also an opportunity for me to thank you. Because um, people like me don't take it for granted that a young individual like yourself, who has been very, very successful in business, connects with Israel and becomes such a, a force, you know, bringing Israel to the awareness of his friends, uh, raising money and resources for, you know, worthy causes in Israel. This is not something that we see too often in Jewish life today, that young people like yourself assume leadership positions. So. It's an opportunity also to thank you. You should know the Israelis don't take this for granted, that people like you are getting involved. This is really meaningful. Well, thank you. I just can't wait till uh, things open up and I can go to Israel again. This has been my longest time away from Israel since I went for the first time. God willing, we'll be able to go. I don't know. When do you think we'll be able to go? Sometime Q1 or Q2? What do you think? I, I don't I really don't know. It's hard to, um, because the lockdown is just, you know, it's not a solution. You lock people up and uh, the number of infections go down and then you let them go and they go up again. That's what's happening in Europe now. That's what happened in Israel. So I don't know. I just pray that the, the winter is not going to bring another wave of uh, infections. Let's wait and see what happens. 
All right, my friend, this was such a pleasure. Yeah, great talking to you and have a great Shabbat. I look forward to seeing you soon. Same to you. Take care, my friend. You too. Thanks. Goodbye. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.